Welcome to episode 9 of the 550 Matters podcast, where we bring you the latest news, views and opinion from across the UK's dedicated fire industry. My name is Brian Sims and I'm the editor of 550 Matters magazine. We're delighted that this podcast is sponsored by the Fire Safety Event, which runs at the NEC in Birmingham on the 27th, 28th and 29th of April 2021. To register for the show, visit www.firesafetyevent.com. As always, I'm joined on the Fire Safety Matters podcast by my colleague Mark Sennett, the CEO of Western Business Media. Hi Mark, how are you? I'm great, thanks, Brian. As you know, I'm sat out here in my favourite place in the world, La Manga Club in Spain, 104 degree heat as I do this. And of course, I'm going to face a 14 day quarantine when I come back. But my golf game suggests that this was definitely worth the quarantine. How's everything with you? Very good indeed, thanks, Mark. Just uh, put uh, five fifty matches to press, of course, the current edition, and now working on the next one. Yeah, you know, it looked looked great with your first edition and we've had more content in that than ever before on the fire safety side. That's the joy of creating a standalone security magazine, Security Matters and a standalone Fire Safety Matters magazine. And of course, everyone that reads both publications now gets CPD hours. But let's move straight into our first news story of the week. And the one I want to cover first, Brian, is a story that you wrote to the British Safety Council, an organisation I know well from the health and safety sector that we cover. The British Safety Council has called on the government to provide adequate funds for the new regulator in the wake of the draft building safety bill. The British Safety Council has welcomed the publication of the government's draft building safety bill in the wake of the Grenfell Tower tragedy, which happened three years ago. But as reported by FSM, the draft document includes measures for implementing the principles and recommendation of Dame Judith Hackett's independent review of the building regulations and fire safety. The government has also published a consultation on fire safety. For its part, the building safety bill formally creates a new national regulator for the safety of buildings who will be working with local authorities and environmental health departments. The government has asked the Health and Safety Executive to establish a new building safety regulator to oversee the safe design, construction, occupation of high-risk buildings to ensure that people are safe and feel safe. That regulator will be independent and give expert advice to local regulators, landlords and building owners, the construction and building design industry and residents. Mike Robinson, who's CEO of the British Safety Council, has written to the Housing Minister, Chris Pincher, asking for an urgent update on the Building Safety Bill. He's duly expressed his concern at the slow progress in removing dangerous ACM cladding from high residential buildings. So we are obviously going to cover this over and over again, Brian. I know you'll have something to add to this in a moment, but the British Safety Council is just the latest person to give their take on the Building Safety Bill. They have welcomed the fact that there's going to be a new regulator, but the key thing, as I'm sure you're about to go on to say, is they want to ensure that the government just doesn't just do this, but that new regulator is properly funded. Something that we can, of course, all understand and agree with. And they'll be thinking, probably in the back of their mind, the HSC has had a reduction in funding in recent years. So if you're going to put this extra pressure for a new regulator to be created and led by the HSC, you better make sure that you fund it. And, you know, I think that's something that we can all agree, but it's difficult times right now. Money's difficult for everyone to come by, including the government due to COVID-19. So it's one thing asking for this funding, it's another thing delivering it. Do you know what your take is, Brian? We've got a couple of quotes from Mike Robinson around that story, in fact, Mark. And he said, I'm glad the Building Safety Bill has now been published, even if after such a long wait. The measures set out by the government should mean that building owners have nowhere to hide if they break the rules. However, if that's to mean anything for residents and workers in potentially unsafe buildings, then the government has to stump up for it. The health and safety executive has a great track record, but if it's to live up to the expectations of this bill, then it must be properly resourced in order to do so. The reality of the situation is that over the last decade, funding has halved and staff numbers have been cut by a third. And Robinson goes on to say, 
Alongside establishing a sound financial basis for the new building safety regulator, we must see local authorities given the resources they need to inspect and enforce regulations. Enforcement must be able to make its presence felt. As I've said before, local authorities need hard cash as well as teeth. So quite hard to comments there, Mark. Yeah, absolutely, Brian. And that went on nicely from what I said. I was pretty sure that Mark Robinson would have said that because of the track record of the HSC having its funding reduced. So we await with bated breath any response. I'm not sure the government are going to give anything other than some mild reassurances on that. But we'll keep an eye on it. And that bill continues to go through the draft stage in some way off from being delivered. So going back to you, Brian, what story do you want to cover this week as your top story? Is it something to do with the London Fire Brigade, Mark? Uh, the brigades are written to all major housing providers in the capital, urging them to put plans in place ahead of the new fire safety legislation that's coming into effect. The fire safety bill clarifies that external walls fall under the fire safety regulations that the brigade enforces in London under the regulatory reform of Fire Safety Order 2005, of course. The much-discussed fire safety bill is currently going through Parliament and will become law once it completes the parliamentary process. For its part, the London Fire Brigade letter sets out what the brigade expects from housing providers, including actions they should be taking now in readiness for the new laws, Mark. The letter strongly advises building owners to consider the risks of any external wall systems and fire doors in their fire risk assessments, regardless of the height of the building. It also states building owners should check the external wall systems meet an acceptable standard of safety and don't contribute towards the external spread of fire. Now, London Fire Commissioner Andy Rowe has said, and I quote here, This legislation will make clear what fire and rescue services can enforce in purpose-built blocks of flats and will use our powers in full to protect people in their own homes. We're writing to housing providers now in order to make sure they're ready and prepared such that we can work together for the safety of Londoners. Alongside this, Mark, the Brigade has welcomed the launch of the government's consultation on fire safety and also the publication of the draft building safety bill, which sets out plans to improve building and fire safety regulations themselves. Those plans include the introduction of a chief inspector of buildings, will be tasked with enforcing the new rules and take strong action against those who break them. The consultation is all about proposals to strengthen the fire safety order previously mentioned, implement the Grenfell Tower Inquiry recommendations and also embolden the regulatory framework for how building control bodies consult with fire and rescue authorities. For those readers of Fire Safety Matters who wish to contribute their views to the consultation, the process is open until October. The London Fire Brigade is calling the government to design a new building safety system to prevent tragedies rather than react to them. On that basis, Andy Rowe and his colleagues welcome the publication of the draft building safety bill, Mark, and the launch of the consultation itself. They're extremely pleased to see the changes which have been laid out, particularly so the introduction of a new regulator for building safety. Now, London is, of course, unique, Mark, in the complexity of its built environment with a higher proportion of private sector buildings, more complex ownership structure of buildings, and buildings which are more likely to require more complex works, in fact. 65% of buildings that will be in the scope of the new regulator actually reside in the capital. And key changes, Mark, set out in the draft building safety bill include the introduction of an accountable person. They'll be responsible for keeping residents safe in high-rise buildings and must listen and respond to residents' concerns. Uh, residents and leaseholders will have access to vital safety information about their building, while new complaints and requirements will be introduced. I mentioned the new regulator for building safety within the Health and Safety Executive. They'll be tasked with ensuring that accountable persons are carrying out their duties properly. And importantly, Mark, the government will have new powers to better regulate construction materials and products and ensure that they're absolutely safe to use. So ultimately, there's a good deal of information to digest there, Mark. There's a lot to take in there, Brian. Like any time that you cover a story, we certainly get bang for the buck in terms of the detail behind that. Let's just start off with a very simple, basic point. That consultation is open until October 2020, and we certainly hope as many people give feedback 
as possible. Now, this is the single biggest change, the biggest improvements to building safety in nearly 40 years in our country. And the whole point of it is putting resident safety as a main priority. Now, a stat that you said in there that, that I thought was fascinating, and to be honest, I, I hadn't really appreciated, you said that 65% of buildings that will be in the scope of that new regulator are actually in London itself. That just shows how much high-rise buildings there are in London and precisely why Commissioner Rowe is urging everyone to get ready for this. It is absolutely key that this regulation is taken seriously and that people are prepared for it. And it was an obvious first step for them to write to all the major housing providers across the capital to get ready for this. So as we've said in the last podcast, there's a lot of change going on right now. It's actually a really exciting and interesting time to cover fire safety with both acts that we just talked about, whether it's the fire safety bill or this new building safety bill. This is, as we said, the biggest change to legislation in 40 years. And I think I said on the last podcast, many conservative governments have been accused of not wanting to put more red tape in or to regulate. Well, that's out of the window post-Grenfell and these things are coming in thick and fast. And the industry has certainly got a strong voice in this. People like the Fire Sector Federation, the Fire Industry Association, ASFP, they've all been involved in this. And now you can see London Fire Brigade uh, getting their two cents across as well. So yeah, big story that, Brian, a lot of depth in there and an interesting couple of statistics. It seems now like a natural segue for you to say who our first guest is this week. Can you tell everyone who you've got for us? Our first guest on this episode of the Fire Safety Matters podcast is Roy Wilshire. Roy is chair of the National Fire Chiefs Council, a role which he began back in April 2017. The holder of a first-class honours degree in fire safety engineering, Roy began his career in the fire service in 1981, becoming a chartered engineer in 2000. A year later, Roy was appointed as project lead for the restructure of the London Fire Brigade. Roy has also held the role of chief fire officer at the Hertfordshire Fire and Rescue Service. Earlier this week, I was delighted to chat with Roy about several key topics, among them Dame Judith Hackett's independent review of building regulations and fire safety, the draft building safety bill, and also how fire and rescue services across the nation have fared during the COVID-19 pandemic. Thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. For the benefit of the readers of Fire Safety Matters, could you outline the National Fire Chiefs Council in terms of how it was formed, its structure, and also its key roles and responsibilities? Yes, so the National Fire Chiefs Council, we were created back in back end of 2016, coming to real formation in uh, April 27. People might recall the Chief Fire Officers Association. One of the difficulties we had, we knew that it was getting more and more work for a single person. We used to have a part-time president that was also a Chief Fire Officer. The lack of real national institutions for fire, we were take, trying to take on more work. We introduced a full-time chair, uh, and also expanded from an eight-person board that used to run uh, SIPFOA into a full chiefs council. Decisions and discussions were amongst all the chiefs, 50 chiefs in the UK. One area manager and above was automatically a member of the National Fire Chiefs Council. At the same time in England, the chief fire and rescue advisor's position uh, was taken away by central government. So I, as the chair, became the official advisor to government. Since then, we've been we've been formulating a consistency standards policy for fire and rescue services, doing things things once rather than fifty times, 
and taken a national approach where that really made sense. Of course, there will be some local variation. Building on our national operational guidance, which yeah, obviously sets standards for emergency response. We've been involved in many streams of work since then, particularly since Grenfell. So all the Dame Judith Hackett View working groups, all six of them, we were on those. I've been a member of the expert panel since Grenfell. We support the Fire Standards Board. So our job really is to support each other, support fire and rescue services, provide consistency and standards, and really give the you know proper professional and technical advice from a fire and rescue point of view to anyone who needs it, really. What do you believe to have been the key findings of Dame Judith Hackett's independent review of building regulations and fire safety, Roy? Well, it was wide-ranging, as you know, and uh, as I've said already, we were involved in every one of the work streams. I, I think what became, you know, it's probably clear to all of us when Grenfell happened, but the thing we really agree with, with Dame Judith, is our building safety, uh, our building construction system is completely broken. Maybe a bit naively, but when you saw external wall system cladding system fires in other parts of the world, Dubai and that. Part of me still wanted to think that our building regulations and our control systems were so good that that wouldn't happen in this country. Obviously, it's become very clear that the cladding system on Grenfell Tower, plus many others, never has and never will comply with building regulations. It's fairly simple. There's about 16 words that the law of this land, the external wall of a building shall not spread by external. You know, it's why it happened and how it happened will come forward. But all those strengthen the role of a regulator, the competence, you know, the lack of competence we see sometimes in building construction now, product testing, welcome, you know, we support sprinklers and welcome introduction of sprinklers. So I know Dame Judith didn't cover that particularly, but we really support sprinklers. A clear duty holder, there's many things we agree with. Few things we didn't agree with a very narrow focus on high rise buildings. I think a major failing uh, with all the work that's gone on since is real concentration on high rise means high risk. Now, we don't necessarily agree with that. We think it, it can be, it depends how your building is built and how it's maintained. You know, you, there's plenty of other vulnerable areas, care homes, hospitals, sheltered housing that we need to concentrate on as well. So we're a little bit concerned that too much con- concentration is going just into high-rise buildings. There are other risk factors. You might recall that no one really speaks about the Joint Competent Authority anymore. we now got building safety regulator. So one or two concerns, but mainly great support for the Hackett Review. What are your views on the draft building safety bill and indeed the fire safety bill, Roy? Do you think the documents hit the right notes at this point? <laughs> The, the two bills, the building safety bill and the fire safety bill, and we, in, in mostly we, we welcome what's going on. I think if I start with the fire safety bill, clarification on uh, doors to flats, apartments, being part of common parts, that's yeah, that's something we've always believed. It, it, as I've said to government before, you know, fire safety in buildings, Janet and John says you need two door protection to a staircase, and one of those is the door to a flat. So, but uh, we've got the clarity coming now. So, um, introducing external wall systems to the fire safety people, we welcome that. As we said back in 2016, we didn't really have the, we didn't have the powers under the fire safety order to deal with external wall systems. Nor really did the housing acts. It's taken a lot of work to get us to work on those areas between us and local authorities. So we welcome that. I think there's a there's a few things in that particular bill or act, the fire safety bill, um, that need, that need some clear definition again. So uh, what is a building? It sounds strange as opposed to uh, people 
who aren't technically minded, but you know, a building really needs strong definition. Same as common parts. We don't want another situation where we're discussing whether fire the doors to apartments are part of common parts. What is a structure? So it's clear that in terms of building safety, I think something, you know, maybe your listeners will realise this, but what many people don't realise is that fire safety is just one part of that bill. Yeah, we have all the and the new regulator with oversight of all types of building control documents that brings. Our biggest concern with building safety bill and building safety regulator is we're still not quite sure how it's going to operate on the ground, how it's going to operate with fire authorities, local authorities, inspectors, who's actually going to do the work, who's going to oversee the work. And whether it concentrates again too much on simple high rise rather than high risk, but so we need there needs some really good strong work on operational implications of the new building safety bill. Overall, the, the general direction we do welcome a strength of the regime, a, perhaps a more prescriptive regime, but I think we've shown that's required, uh, and to move forward in all those areas. One of the things we found particularly incompetent is training in fire safety and fire safety provision. I don't think there's many architects or planners courses that do much more than half a day, if that, on fire safety. We also need more fire engineers, both in fire rescue world and externally. So we've asked government to push Department of Education to push universities to introduce more fire engineering degrees. There's only three or four universities that do that now. Uh, firefighters across the country have boldly taken on so many extra tasks during the coronavirus outbreak, of course, Roy. How do you feel the fire and rescue services have fared during the pandemic? And are there any lessons to be learned from this period, do you think? It's been a shock to the system for everyone uh, across the world, not just the UK. And I think fire rescue services in the UK have really, uh, particularly in England and Wales, have really stepped up to the mark. We use the term ready, willing and able. And that's really shown that. Now, we reached agreement with the National Fire Employers and Fire Brigade Union to take on some extra activities. And, and they've ranged from you know, emergency driving of ambulances, moving bodies uh, during the COVID period, delivering vital supplies to both hospitals and care homes, but also medicine, food to vulnerable people. We've delivered things, we've driven things, we've transported patients. I think we've really stood up. I, I was looking at our dashboard today because we've been keeping a track of these activities. We're on almost 400,000 extra activity. Not only that, our, our absence has been remarkably low for the fire rescue services. We, you know, we never ever went above about 7% absence and now we're down in terms of COVID absence, lower than 3% and overall absence 5%. So I think it's been remarkable uh, how many resources we've had in place how much extra work we've done and how much we've supported our communities right across the UK. Plus, of course, delivering all our normal work, whether it's fires, road traffic incidents. We've had to be much more risk approached on our prevention and protection work, especially when older vulnerable people are shielding. We had to do that on a risk basis and make sure we did increase their risk uh, from infection. But we really have, uh, I think, uh, stood up and, and performed remarkably well over this period. Just to close, Roy, as reported by Fire Safety Matters recently, there were 300 plus prosecutions for assaults on emergency services workers in the first month of lockdown alone. That being so, what are your views on the government's consultation around doubling the maximum sentence for such assaults? Yeah, the assault on, uh, on all emergency workers, or actually all key workers, is 
outrageous. When when you think police colleagues, paramedics, doctors, nurses, firefighters, we we all join to help people and help vulnerable people. And when you see attacks on uh, my colleagues across emergency services and, and key workers, it, it makes you wonder what's going through people's minds, doesn't it? It makes you really question where their thought processes are. Uh, so we welcomed the, the first legislation. We do welcome this increase as well. We People need to take this seriously. Fortunately, that you know, attacks on firefighters are, are reasonably rare. It does happen, certainly in some parts of the, of the country. It, it does happen, places like fireworks night and the, those sorts of areas. But we really want to support colleagues in police and health as well because they, they get attacked far too frequently. But we do welcome post increase in sentences. Well, it was a real pleasure to have Roy Wilshire on the show this week. He's about as big a name as you can get in the fire sector, and I hope everyone found that as useful and as interesting as we did. But now we shift our focus back to the news, and we'll stay with firefighters. And my take on this might be a little bit controversial, so we'll see. So firefighters and control staff have been offered what they're referring to as an insulting 2% increase from employers. The Fire Brigade Union, the FBU, has condemned a 2% pay offer from employers, labelling the figure insulting to frontline firefighters and control staff. The pay uplift is below that for teachers, doctors, dentists, police and prison officers. The offers is on a par with judges, senior civil servants and members of the armed forces. The FBU has slammed the fire service employers and chief fire officers for failing to value the work that their staff do and criticised government ministers for failing to step in to ensure firefighters are properly rewarded in this year's pay round, especially in the light of the extra work they've taken on to deal with the COVID-19 crisis. After a meeting of the FBU's Executive Council, it's been recommended that the money be immediately paid to staff as it will be better in the pockets of firefighters and control staff than sitting in employers' reserves. The pay offer will now go out to consultation for 28 days during which time firefighters and control staff will be able to discuss the offer with trade unions at meetings and in workplaces across the UK. The FBU will talk to members about their options to campaign for better pay over the next year including the potential for industrial action and and gosh Brian we can all remember the very recent firefighter strikes all to do with pensions that went on and on and on. So we certainly want to see if we can avoid that situation again. Firefighters have taken on an additional 14 areas of work in response to coronavirus pandemic. An agreement was reached on the 26th of March that allowed them to drive ambulances, deliver vital supplies to the elderly and vulnerable and move the bodies of deceased. Since then, a number of further activities have been agreed, including the assembling of personal protective equipment, PPE, and training care home staff in infection prevention and control measures around COVID-19. Despite this, fire service employers have offered the same pay settlement as last year, when pay rise for firefighters and control staff were actually, as I've said before, increased by 2%. After a decade of pay restraint, firefighters are around £4,000 worse off in general than they were in 2010. So my take on this, I can completely understand and credit to the union that you should always fight for workers' rights and to get the best pay possible. I don't think respect for public service officials such as firefighters and you know frontline healthcare staff has ever been higher. But we are in a pandemic. It is true to say that they've taken on more work. 
you could also say plenty of people and plenty of businesses have taken on a lot more work. I know in our company, we've taken on a lot more work just to survive because it really is about that, Brian. It really is about fighting to economically survive. And in terms of life, it actually could be in certain cases, in many cases, fighting to survive with your health. Now, I fully support the job that firefighters do, and I want to see them get the best pay they could possibly do because they risk their lives every day that they go out to go to a fire to protect us. But at the same time, they have been offered a pay rise. Many, many people across the country will not be offered a pay rise. Many are losing jobs left, right and centre. Many have been furloughed. Many continue to stay furloughed. So I think at this point, I'm not sure that the general public is necessarily going to stomach anyone saying no, no pay rise is enough. It needs to be higher and higher. And I think this would be the wrong time to strike. I'm not saying they don't deserve more money, but right now, a time when the government has got to do all the things it's got to fund from the furlough scheme due to an economy that's absolutely tanking because of this pandemic, I just don't think this is the right time for a union to get on a soapbox and say, we want much higher pay right now when people are losing their lives and losing their jobs across the country. Do you know what your take is, Brian? Well, Matt Rackmark has had much to say on this matter, as you can imagine. He's the FBU's General Secretary. Uh, Matt said, firefighters and control staff were due a pay officer on 1st of July. Nearly a month past that deadline, fire service employers have made an offer. There's absolutely no excuse for making our members wait like this. Sadly, the offer reflects the fact that employers simply don't value the vital and life-saving work our members undertake every day nor the extraordinary lengths many have gone to in aiding the coronavirus response. Government ministers could have stepped in to ensure our members would be properly rewarded in this year's pay round, but they chose to stand idly by. Now, Matt Rax also said, the chief fire officers who advise employers during pay negotiations must also bear some responsibility for the desperate situation facing our service and those who work within it. Throughout the past decade, they've done absolutely nothing to challenge the brutal austerity policies of central government, which have continued to rob our service of investment and resources. This pay offer doesn't address the needs of FBU members, whose wages have still not recovered from years of pay restraint. However, firefighters and control staff desperately need an improvement in their living standards, and this money will be better in their pockets than sitting in employer reserves. In conclusion, uh, Rack said, we will now consult firefighters and control staff on the offer and discuss campaigning options around issues of paying conditions over the coming year, including various forms of industrial action, as you said, Mark. So much to discuss there. Yeah, Brian. I think I just ran off by probably reminding Matt Rack something that he already knows. There isn't a bottomless money pit here. As I've said, I'm completely behind firefighters getting the best pay possible, and the job they do is phenomenal. They do a far more noble profession than I do. They risk their lives, and they are an essential public service that protects property and saves lives. So they've fortunately been given a pay rise offer. As I said, I just don't think it's going to sit well right now in the middle of a pandemic, them threatening industrial action to get an even higher pay rise. This will be the second consecutive year they've had a pay rise. So, Brian, let's move on to your final news story of the week. What have you got for us? Well, in its role as the UK's national standards body, Mark, the British Standards Institution, the BSI, has announced the new National Standards Programme that's all about raising professional competence in the built environment sector. The standards themselves aim to tackle the competence challenges identified by James Judith Hackett during the independent review of building regulations and fire safety, and as outlined in the Building a Safer Future document. They're part of the package of measures recommended by the steering group of competence for building a safer future, which were set out in raising the bar. The government-funded programme is designed to support the delivery of regulatory policy and the new regulated roles responsible for building safety, as set out in the 
draft building safety bill, which we discussed already. It includes an overarching competence framework standard for everyone working on a building. The intention here, Mark, is really for this to be used by key professions and trades, including fire risk assessors, designers, contractors, building managers, and others in specialist technical or corporate roles. The framework itself will provide a set of core principles of competence, including a focus on fire and life safety, of course, uh, leading and managing safety, communicating safety, delivering safety, risk management, regulations and processes, building systems and also ethics. The framework will be developed and made available for use from this autumn. After three planned periods of public consultation and refinement, it will then be published as a British standard. It will also include a set of competence requirements for the three newly regulated roles, namely those of principal designer, principal contractor and building safety manager. A set of fast-track publicly available specification standards will be produced to meet the urgent need for competent individuals to fulfil these roles as set out in the government's new bill in order to ensure the safety of residents. Speaking about the news, uh, Scott Steedman, who is the Director of Standards at the BSI, has said Dame Judith Hackett's report asked the built environment industry to change its culture in order to safeguard people and their properties. In response to the call to put clear responsibility at the heart of the system, the BSI has launched the Professional Competence Standards Programme. The new industry-led standards will support the Building Safety Bill by raising the bar across workforce competence. Now, Dame Judith Hackett herself has responded to this, Mark, and has stated, and I quote, The work of the Competence Steering Group has been a tour de force, and all of those who've been involved thus far are to be congratulated. As the baton is handed over to the BSI to lead us through the standards development process itself, the whole industry needs to keep up the pace, not just to agree on the new standards, but also to make them a reality in practice. That will require collaboration and cooperation and the demolition of silos. This is part of the culture change that's so urgently needed. Since the standardisation programme began back in April, it's been overseen by a newly established BSI Built Environment Competence Standards Strategy Group. This consists of strategic, senior-level technical and policy experts from a broad range of organisations involved in the design, construction and management of higher-risk buildings. That programme will actually run until 2022. It's apparent, Mark, that this new stakeholder-led national standards programme is a welcome and vital next step in raising and setting the bar for enhanced competence standards for all those engaged in ensuring that buildings are safe for their residents and occupants through the design and construction of refurbishment phases and also continuing further into the management of buildings in use. Clearly, the government is determined to put resident safety first by bringing about the biggest improvements in building safety regulations in over four decades. It's important to assert here, though, Mark, that regulatory reforms alone will not achieve this aim. There's a very clear and defined need to raise skills right across the industry, backed by a strong national competence framework. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a great story to finish on, Brian. On previous episodes of the Fire Safety Matters podcast, we've talked a lot about competency and standards. We've had BAFE on, we've had Ian Moore from the Fire Industry Association on as well. As I've said a couple of times, competency is the key word, the key buzzword since the Hackett Review. In my opinion, every meeting that I sit on the Fire Safety Federation, that comes up, they have a working group on it. Now, one of the things that you said on there, Brian, was that the BSI will also include a set of competency requirements for the three newly regulated roles, which, as you said, were principal designer, principal contractor, and building safety manager. These key roles have an overarching responsibility for the main activities affecting building and life safety at each stage of the building's life cycle, which is, you know, the design, construction, operation. They require 
enhanced competencies in addition to any discipline related competencies relating to their overarching role to ensure that the design intent given to the building is maintained and that work is employed and used in its design, construction, refurbishment, maintenance and operation to suit the competence. So as we come back to that, Brian, competency, competency, competency. That's the buzzword. That's what everybody is talking about. Dame Judith Hackett review. So that moves us on nicely now to our regular recurring guest, Warren Spencer. As many of you know, Warren has done more prosecutions under the fire safety order than anybody else. He's managing director of Blackhurst Bud Solicitors. And this week, I actually had a really interesting conversation. We've seen some feedback online to him from the podcast, which is talking about prohibition notices. And one thing that's come up is people can't understand why the fire brigades don't just shut down buildings or properties once there's been a prohibition notice issued. But as Warren will tell you, it's not as simple as that. So I sat down with Warren earlier, and here's what he had to say. Morning, Warren. How are you? I'm good, thank you, Mark. You? Yeah, all good, all good, thank you. So we were talking off air last week about prohibition notices, enforcement notices, and you said to me, one of the things that people often approach you with is they say, well, when a prohibition notice is issued against someone for a breach to fire safety legislation, why don't they just shut the premises down until they comply? So, for example, a hotel or, or a restaurant. And, you, you know, you had quite a strong view on that. I thought it would be worth you sharing that with our audience today. Yes, it's, it's something that surprised me when, um, whenever I've reported cases of mine that uh, involve prosecutions for a breach of a prohibition notice. Um, I, I, certainly on my LinkedIn and Twitter, I, I get people almost criticising the fire service for not closing the premises down. Uh, and this surprises me because the fire service has not, under the fire safety order, got the power to close premises down physically. The prohibition notice is designed for that purpose. It's a notice which says you must not use the premises for this purpose, whichever is outlined in the prohibition notice. And if you do and breach this notice, that is a criminal offence. And that's all, the only power that the order gives. It, it, obviously, it doesn't give the power to officers to lock up buildings or affect them in any way. In fact, even if the officers were suspecting that a prohibition notice was being breached, they wouldn't have the power to force entry to go and see if it was. The fire safety order just does not give them any power of entry or forcible entry in that regard. So all the all the services can do is issue a prohibition notice, which is a notice saying do not do this. And on that basis, if the defendant carries on doing that, they will be prosecuted. Uh, and so when I see people saying, why didn't they close the premises down? I, I'm somewhat confused at, at that ideology as to what, what more the fire service can do. Do you think, you know, from your own legal opinion, that's something that you would support a change in law to give fire and rescue services that power? Do you think that's something that should happen or do you think the system's fine how it is? I, I certainly think that fire officers need more powers under Article 27. Uh, I, and I have advised in a number of situations where the fire service is aware that premise that prohibition notices are being breached and that they want to go in effectively to protect the people that are in there which may be in the case of an hmo they may be residents in the case of a hotel which has happened recently um, they may be guests unknowing of the prohibition notice 
and also in respect of um, premises which are being used to house workers. The, the fire service know that this is happening. Um, and of course, when a prohibition notice is drafted in a way which says it, it should not be used for, these premises should not be used for sleeping, for example, um, or in my preference, that they should be banned from everything with exceptions as to what they can do, such as storage or using bathrooms in, in upper floors, etc. The, the fire service and fire officers have no power of entry to go and make sure the people that are inside the premises know that they're in unsafe premises from a fire safety point of view. Again, a recent case of an Airbnb where there was nobody managing the premises. Guests checked in by way of a, a, a code which was texted to their phone. They went in. They had no idea that there was a prohibition notice in place and, and the fire service couldn't go in to tell them. And you said earlier that obviously if you breach a prohibition notice that's in place, it is a criminal offence. Would it be safe to assume then that it's also an aggravating factor at that point, isn't it, probably on the original breach that they're being brought to court for? I'm pretty sure during sentencing that would be taken as an aggravating factor, would it not? It, it definitely does. It's, it's one of those offences that judges pick up on and say, if you're not going to obey orders uh, like this, then we're going to punish you more severely for that. Uh, and obviously... As you say, that there would be substantive reasons that the prohibition notice were issued was issued in the first place, which which usually are offences in themselves. But the presence of a prohibition notice may, in fact, be the difference between a fine and a custodial sentence, and in some cases, the difference between a suspended custodial sentence and an immediate prison sentence, where the defendant has to go to prison. You know, so that line of question today on prohibition notices is something that Warren and I had picked up on as social media comments. And we would encourage you, like we always do, to get your questions into Warren because he is a recurring guest and we're very grateful for that. If you've got a question you'd like me to pose to Warren on any legal side of things, it's very rare you can get a bit of free advice from a lawyer. I'm sure Warren won't mind me saying that. And uh, all you need to do is use the hashtag FSM podcast. You can do that on LinkedIn or Twitter. But although Warren gives great advice here and a really good insight, I would encourage you to go to him for professional advice if you think that you need it. Warren, if people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to do so? Twitter, LinkedIn, Warren Spencer, um, and Blackhurst Blood Solicitors. Um, we deal with all kinds of uh, fire safety work, not just prosecutions, but also protecting people um, as far as contracts are concerned and, and making sure that they're not any more culpable than they need to be under the fire safety order. Brilliant, Warren. Great to speak to you, and we'll see you next time. Thank you, Mark. Take care. Our final guest on the podcast this time around is Adam Welton, the founder and director of Nottingham-based Fire Safety Solutions Developer Land Control Systems, itself part of the Helmer Group of Companies. Adam is a recognised specialist in fire security and BMS with over 30 years experience in engineering, design, servicing, sales and product management. Mark interviewed Adam to find out his take on all of the latest developments in the field of fire alarm management systems and how the cloud is now playing its part in this particular arena. Morning, Adam. How are you? I'm very well, thanks, uh, Mark. Thank you for inviting me today. Well, we've, we've been with each other twice this week. Obviously, we did a really successful webinar 
earlier this week and I'm very grateful for all of your time with that. We had a huge amount of questions in for you and had over 1,200 people register. Could you, for those of people that didn't hear the webinar and can of course listen to it on demand for free now and get CPD hours, listen to it. Can you tell us a little bit about what you covered? Indeed, we, we, we talked about the fire alarm logbook and also how that can ensure compliance and improve efficiency across fire alarm system maintenance. That, that obviously covers all the aspects of fire alarm logbooks with um, weekly testing and the annual servicing. Primarily, of course, there are other aspects and other interested parties. Uh, so we, we, we try to cover that, the whole aspect of, of logbooks. Yeah, it was a brilliant session. It was about an hour long. If anyone wants to listen to it, as I said, you can get CPD for listening to it. All you need to do is go to our website, www.fsmatters.com, and click on the webinars tab. So I want to talk about Nimbus today, which is obviously your baby, Adam. So could you tell us a bit more about what Nimbus is and what Nimbus does? Certainly, thank you. Nimbus originally was, was an SMS messaging system. It's evolved over time and has become the de facto service tool for fire alarm service companies that want to evidence their service trail. As time's gone on, it's become broader and encompasses now weekly testing. So it is the source of truth of, rece of receiving data from fire alarm panels and putting those into logs within the cloud and delivering that data in, in formatted reports for the service of how many devices have been serviced in a, within a service period of 12 months and how many devices have been maintained in terms of call points in the weekly testing and, and also logging that data infinitely and producing notifications based on emails and mobile phone applications. In terms of Nimbus, one of the questions that we had quite a lot through the webinar was asking if it's compatible with other fire alarm panels and all fire alarm panels. So the question there is, is it Adam? And if so, can you list what systems it is compatible with, please? Gosh, um, we've been developing Nimbus to integrate with lots of fire alarm panels for a long time. The list is, is quite long, but, but we work with most of the major manufacturers in terms of Advanced, Kentec, Notifier, Tyco, Ampac, Fike. There is a list on our website, landcontrolsystems.com, and underneath the products, there's a, a, a web page called Compatible with Nimbus. And I believe that there are about 50 protocols listed within that, that web page. I knew when I asked that question, because I've seen that list, because I'm familiar with your product, that I instantly regretted asking you listing all of it, because we could do an entire <laughs> podcast just on each one. You were right to redirect them to the website on that. In terms of, again, talking about Nimbus. Is there any other products that Nimbus covers? Indeed. We uh, have had requests from customers to interface for other devices as they liked the functionality of the logging and, and so on. And one of the key um, integration capabilities was digital inputs. So instead of connecting a fire alarm system to Nimbus, we can connect a range of digital input modules that can then be configured within the database to be monitoring anything in, in terms, and we like to focus on fire safety. So fire sprinklers, flow switches, water tank levels, water detection, temperature, frost, pumps, extract fans, dampers, etc. And you create your, your spreadsheet of assets, you configure the description of the device input, and you say, I want this to send or log the notifications based on 
the rising switch value or the open switch value or the closed switch value of that input. I mean, that's fascinating, Adam, because a friend of ours who's the Bob Doherty, Dr. Bob Doherty, the Institute of Fire Safety Managers, has long talked about the need for a fire safety passport of a building. So funny enough, actually, a large part of his vision of, of, of actually seeing what's within a building and being able to, to monitor it, your system can do. But I guess my follow-up question to that then is, does Nimbus currently connect to intruder alarm systems as well? It does. We Again, it's listed on our website, but we, we, we have integrated into CCTV systems and intruder alarm systems for specific applications. The common interface on intruder, I believe, is the Microtech Galaxy or the Honeywell Galaxy product. And I believe that there's some Texacom integration ongoing. Yeah, you're right. I know Texacom are definitely working on that part of obviously your wider group as well, the Halmer group. But our readership and the listeners of this podcast is pretty diverse, Adam. They come from a range of different sectors. They could be fire safety managers, they could be consultants, they could be installers. So for those that aren't familiar with the Nimbus system, we're trying to give them an insight into this today. I know you've got a couple of really interesting case studies which you've shared with FSM before. Would you mind sharing them with us now briefly? Certainly. One of the key areas that attracts people to using Nimbus uh, is, is clients that have a large portfolio of sites spread over a large geographical footprint. Uh, one of those is typically the National Trust and other heritage properties. So we've produced a case study for, for the National Trust and Nimbus gets used for the weekly testing the servicing aspect, and and indeed notifications primarily to the alarm receiving centres to support their primary signalling. So that in the evenings, when when the properties are not staffed, if there's a fire alarm, the alarm receiving centre are not asking the key holder to respond by going to site and verifying if that's a genuine alarm or not. If a second device activates, Nimbus confirms that to the alarm receiving centre, enabling a more speedier response. So another application in terms of the case studies is Bristol University. Bristol University have a large amount of sites, 40 or 50 sites now, I think, spread over the Bristol area. They accommodate some of the uh, housing accommodation as well as the the, uh, campus sites. And they all report back to a central location, to an application in their control location. So again, they have integration and visibility of all of their sites on a 24-7 basis. So Adam, if people want to find out more about land control systems or about Nimbus, what's the best way to get in touch with you? The best way is by, by email to sales at landcontrolsystems.com. We do have phone numbers, but, but obviously during the, uh, the current situation, I think uh, the emails are the preferable route. And in terms of obviously visiting the website, the Land Control Systems website is www.landcontrolsystems.com. Adam, as always, it's been a pleasure to speak to you. I would encourage everybody that missed the webinar to watch it on demand. You said you did a great job on that. You can go fsmatters.com, look at the webinars tab, and the Land Controls one is right at the top of the page, and you will get CPD if you watch it on demand. As always, Adam, my friend, great to hear from you. Thanks for your time today. Thank you, Bart. Bye-bye.
us to the end of this latest edition of the Fire Safety Matters podcast. Many thanks indeed to Roy Wilshire from the National Fire Chiefs Council, Warren Spencer of Blackhurst Bud Solicitors, and also Adam Walton at Land Control Systems for their highly valued contributions. You can read more on the issues raised here and others by visiting the Fire Safety Matters website at www.fsmatters.com. We do hope you've enjoyed the content and found it useful. On that note, please do contact us if there are any particular themes or issues you would like us to explore on upcoming broadcasts. You can do so on Twitter by using the hashtag FSMpodcast. Do make sure you follow us on Twitter at fsmatters underscore mag. As a reminder, the Fire Safety Matters podcast is live to view every fortnight on Wednesdays. Please do like and share the content and spread the word among your industry colleagues. You can listen to the Fire Safety Matters podcast for free on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube or Podbean. All you need to do is access your chosen platform and enter the term Fire Safety Matters into the search box. We'll see you next time.